0: I'm your host Minwei Tao. Today, here to discuss creativity with us is Scott Belsky, the Chief Product Officer of Adobe, where he leads product management and engineering for the Creative Cloud products and services. Prior to Adobe, Scott founded Behance, a creative digital platform now owned by Adobe for creators to showcase and discover creative work. Scott is also an investor in numerous startups and has been an advisor on design and product management for leading companies and organizations including Adidas, Pinterest, and Facebook. He is also the author of two best-selling books, Making Ideas Happen and The Messy Middle. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you, Minwei. Thanks for having me.
0: So I first came across your name at Cornell's Electric Convergence Conference this year, and it's not just this year, but you seem to come back to Cornell every year to discuss entrepreneurship and tech with students. In fact, when we wanted to host you for Present Value, I knew exactly who to contact, and that's Zach Schulman, who runs entrepreneurship at Cornell. So for our listeners out there who don't know, tell us about your connection to Cornell and what keeps you coming back year after year.
1: Sure, well, my, my connection to Cornell runs deep. Um, I went to Cornell as an undergrad, I um, had an aspiration to just be an entrepreneur and to pursue ideas that I had. And so I went my freshman year to this little office called Entrepreneurship at Cornell and, uh, and just sort of asked what I could do and, uh, and got really involved, ended up leading the entrepreneur organization at Cornell as an undergrad and, um, and you know made some great friends and lifelong relationships um, while at Cornell, also met my wife while I was at Cornell and uh and you know and then and and the convergence is a, a really uh cool way to just stay connected to cornell so i've been helping as a uh, host or an assistant host for the last i don't know eight years or whatever um and it's uh, just a great way to stay part of the family see a lot of folks that i uh, i always miss
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And a lot of my classmates were virtual this year, obviously because of the pandemic. So when they come back on campus next year, what are some favorite spots or hidden gems that you would highly recommend?
1: Well, I'll probably be dating myself because a lot of them are probably gone. But Mm. and I always, I always swing by College Town Bagel, which I hear is gone, but then coming back, I don't know.
0: There's Uh, three locations now, so they're back. Okay, good.
1: They're back. Okay, great. That's excellent to hear. Um, you know, and I love to go to that, that restaurant called Aladdin's, uh, hopefully they're still around. Um, and, uh, you know, and I just, I mean, but obviously walking around campus brings back, uh, a lot of memories.
0: Yeah. So after Cornell, you went on to Goldman Sachs, which is very different from what you're doing now. So at that point in your career, did you have like a five-year plan, like very high achieving Ivy League graduates do? <laughs> what were some of the initial thoughts on becoming an entrepreneur when you were at Goldman?
1: Well, I went to Goldman because I wanted to really get my um, business education, so to speak. You know, right after undergraduate, and um, had a great experience there. But after a year and a half, I realized I did not want to be in finance, and mm-hmm. was going to leave the firm. But then I ultimately got an opportunity to join a team called Pine Street, which was doing at the time it was part of the executive office, focusing on leadership development, organizational improvement, and and uh, sort of like management consulting within the firm. And I had an incredible experience there, three more years learning from, um, you know, a number of executives that were invested in developing the company, you know, the organization and fell in love with the notion of organizational design and building teams and developing leaders and, uh, and also you know, had some time to incubate what would ultimately become Behance, which was an effort to organize the creative world.
0: Gotcha. So, um, at what point did creativity really become front and center in driving your work forward? Have you always been someone who was creative and advocated for doing things or solving problems creatively, or is that something you picked up through more of your professional experiences?
1: Yeah, I, I well, I, while I was at Cornell, I actually took a lot of classes in the design and environmental analysis major.
2: Hmm.
1: And that really developed my, you know, I guess you could call it design thinking and also helped me discover my interest in product design and, uh, digital product experiences. Uh, and, and that became kind of my, my power alley, if you will. Like I just loved thinking about the psychology of getting a a new customer, you know, in a digital experience up to speed, you know, how to onboard them, how to make sure they know why they're there, what to do now and what to do next. And uh, and and so that was a skill set that I got to develop in the early days of Behance, and then you know since obviously working with lots of different companies and teams mm-hmm. over the years. But uh, but it was really always an interesting design, you know, that I've had since uh, a very young age.
0: Got it. So after Goldman, you went on to Harvard Business School. That's really where you put your head down and founded Behance. As you know probably too well, a big part of the MBA experience is finding that summer internship. Um, mm-hmm. So when you were a student, you did not send out a resume and plan to focus on Behance, which is, I'm guessing, a very untraditional route back in 2006 before entrepreneurship became as popular as, as it is today. So what can you tell us about taking this road less traveled by when mm-hmm. um, most of your classmates were probably getting ready for their corporate and managerial jobs?
1: Yeah, well, that you know, that first year. Um, I. Right as the summer was approaching, I got a I got a voicemail from the career office at 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 HBS um, asking if I was sick um, because apparently I was one of two people that did not drop a resume in the process of internships that year out of nine hundred people. So wow. I definitely knew I was sort of odd person out in that regard. Mm-hmm. But um, but I you know I I really I I had a very like singular focus then, which was. I believe that the creative industry was rapid, rampantly disorganized. I felt like there was a company that just didn't exist that needed to, to help organize the creative world. And I was just hell bent on building it. So it, it's funny, like I didn't, it's not that I really like hesitated, but it was a little, you know, a little awkward to explain to my friends in my section that I had no plan for the summer from an internship perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in those early days, what was the most difficult and what did you have to tell yourself or maybe the people you were working with when things got really tough?
1: Well, I've always, I've always really believed that a labor of love always pays off, just not how you'd expect.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I really felt like we were onto something. I was working with a team that I really respected. We committed to each other to stick together to figure this out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and. And I, and I started to see you know, every day when customers were interacting with our products, even if they were the early bootstrapping products, like our paper product line you know, for notebooks that organize creative people,
2: mm.
1: people really got it. And that was extraordinarily rewarding. Uh, looking back, what I realized is that I had sort of short-circuited the reward system for my team and I. Instead of the public accolades and huge revenue and customer base, we were being and feeling rewarded by individual customers incrementally giving us good feedback to make us feel like we were really onto something. So I had this desire to stick with it. I felt like at minimum it would be a good lifestyle business, Mm -hmm. working with people that I love, serving customers that I love and maybe more.
0: So I'm really interested in what you said about the paper line. So for me, as someone from the outside, I only know of Behance as the digital product as it is today. Can you tell us a little bit more about the early paper products that you guys had?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, if anyone you know, if, if anyone were to Google like action book or Doc grid book or any of these uh, terms, they're they're mm-hmm. still out there, and these are the this was a set of products we designed. To help creative people be more organized Hmm. in their daily lives and in some ways we saw it as a part of our mission manifested physically in a world where we were competing with others that were only digital and so Hmm. i i I kind of came away from that experience with the belief that modern businesses are mission-centric and medium agnostic
2: Hmm.
1: meaning that they have a very singular mission in our case it was to organize the creative world and they're willing to achieve it through any medium whatsoever. And these days, it's easier than ever before. I mean, you can have a Shopify store connected directly to a manufacturer who does real-time manufacturing based on orders. You can have podcasts, you can have videos, you can have, I mean, a multimedia, multi-medium business pretty easily.
0: Right. And I actually find that these days, because people are so digital-centric and they're using a lot of Digital, I think sometimes people crave that actual physical element or a physical medium as well.
1: I think so. I think it differentiates brands, and um, and there's you know physicality that humans just love. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, to be able to hold something. So uh-huh. so actually to prepare for this episode, um, I, I spent some time with the producers looking through the hands that is today and the wide range of portfolios displayed on it. A challenge I gave to the team was to find the most interesting thing to them. And we have everything from Chinese calligraphy to a category called gastronomy art. Um, to a portfolio called Social Media on Fire, which specifically showcases Saudi Arabian CPG brands, including ice cream and cat food. So, <laughs> I'm curious to know how people use Behance today has either validated or built upon your original vision in starting the company, or what has surprised you the most about its development and how users are interacting with it.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for that question. It's it's a, it's a great question, and Behance. One of the coolest parts about being a being the team behind Behance was that every day we would come in and be kind of awestruck by the types of stuff that was showing up. Mm-hmm. It was just extraordinarily validating and exciting to see some random team in the world um, mm-hmm. debut something that the world has never seen. I remember in two thousand, maybe like two thousand nine, two thousand ten, we saw this team called Lick Factor out of Cologne, Germany, that was basically taking flashlights and graffiti and mixing them to this new genre of light graffiti art. And then they became really popular in Behance. And then Sprint, the telephone company, discovered them and hired them. And it it became their commercial, like Sprint at the Speed of Light. And, uh, And there were a lot of examples like that of new genres of work that would originate and showcase themselves really for the first time from the middle of nowhere on Behance. And then you'd see tons of other teams and other creatives kind of mimic it, copy it, get inspired by it. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, you felt like you had your finger on the pulse of culture Mm -hmm. because you'd see, you know, just the world um, and the creative world evolving. I remember when, I think it was 2011, when the massive Japanese earthquake happened and we came into work and for the next five to 10, 10 days, you know, you just had creatives around the world responding to this crisis in real time through their work. You just saw amazing pieces of work to support japan thinking of japan you know japan's flag intermixed with someone crying like just amazing interpretations of this moment and that was another kind of realization that this is how the world responds to crisis is by is by identifying with media that helps us feel what's happening around us helps us understand what's happening around us and in the murder of george floyd and in the you know, in, in so many of the issues that we've had, both politically and racially, you know, just seeing the creative world kind of respond to the crisis, and then use their work to help people galvanize around a cause, mm-hmm. you know, that I never expected that. Mm-hmm. This is meant to be a portfolio platform for people to showcase and discover work and get career opportunity. But what it also has become is a bit of a stream of the, you know, the creative
0: world. Yeah, that's really powerful. So, so for our listeners who don't know, Behance was acquired by Adobe in 2012 for $150 million. At the time of acquisition, Behance had only, I think, 32 employees, but 1 million active members. And what's also interesting is that earlier that year of the acquisition, Behance raised a $6.5 million Series A round from famous investors, including Union Square Ventures, 500 Startups, Jeff Bezos, David Tish, Alexis Ohanian, and Garrett Camp. So why did the Adobe acquisition make sense to you at that time?
1: Yeah, it's a good question because every entrepreneur has to kind of decide Mm -hmm. whether this is, um, something they want to do. And for me, it came down to really three things. Um, number one, uh, the output outcome for our customers, number two, the outcome for our team. And, um, and, uh, and and also like what we wanted to do in the world and whether this is gonna help us or hurt us from doing that. And mm-hmm. and so from a customer perspective, we realized that part of our mission was to help creatives get attribution for their work. And to really organize the creative world at work, we had to get into the tools that creatives use. And so we really felt like Adobe would be the perfect kind of uh, family to be a part of, to to accomplish that. Right. From a team perspective, you know, I had the choice from a financially you know, financial view, we could raise a series B and a series C and really, you know, go the distance, um, taking on a ton more dilution and market risk and everything. And when I really did the math, I realized that it was somewhat apples to apples. You know, even if we went in and exited at a multiple later on, given everything we'd have to do in between then and that na- and, and that and that moment and how many more people would have to build the team with and give equity to and dilution from investors, et cetera, I realized that it kind of, you know, kind of was the same. Yeah. And so, uh, so that was, that, and, and then from a, um, from, a, uh, and from a kind of what we wanted to do perspective, it just was very clear that we were going to be at the epicenter of Creative Cloud, which was Adobe's vision. And we were all going to be able to take on more responsibility. And fast forward, almost half of our team is still together almost nine years later. So I think that that thesis played out.
0: Yeah. So after Behance became a part of Adobe's Creative Cloud, like you said, um, you have both continued to work on developing the product internally and then also took on subsequent roles at Adobe, including the VP of Community, VP Product for the Creative Cloud. And of course, today, you are the Chief Product Officer. So Adobe's rallying cry is creativity for all. What does that mean to you, from a strategic standpoint as an executive of this tech creative powerhouse, and also from a more personal standpoint?
1: Well, I think that creativity has has largely and to, for too long been somewhat of a um, you know a, a hard to achieve you know hard to learn privileged um, set of tools that you had to know and. These days, as AI kind of replaces a lot of the role of humans productivity-wise, you, know, you used to stand out in the workplace based on your productivity. Now, as algorithms and bots and third-party apps accomplish all of those tasks, what will help creatives or people rather, what will help people stand out in the workplace in the future? And, uh, and what are the implications for that? I mean, my view is that ultimately the most uniquely human skill we've all got is creativity. And as more and more gets done by computers, we have to be able to make our mark. And so that means that in education, art class, you know, creativity can no longer be confined to the art class once or twice a week. It has to be permeating the entire curriculum.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, in the enterprise, we can't just have productivity tools. We need to have creativity tools. We need to be trained on how to use them and how they work. Um, and uh, and so I think it's Adobe's opportunity and responsibility to make these products easier to use more widely available to bring them to new platforms you know mobile web etc, and to also um, also just have a more accessible a price point B type of product that people can use you know beyond pros so I, I think that Adobe is the creativity company and um, I think we have a uh, a lot to prove, you know, to make that happen. But that's why I'm excited to be here.
0: Mm -hmm. And back to our early discussion about how you started your career at Goldman. How do you see creativity coming into play for traditional, for traditionally less creative industries, such as maybe financial services or manufacturing?
1: Well, in all of these knowledge worker type roles Mm -hmm. and, um, and in the manufacturing space or the services space, you know, a lot of companies are being started by soloists, individual people who then have to represent themselves on social media, they have to manage relationships with their customers, they have to build their brand and and, and have essentially their own mini marketing organization. And so all of these folks, whether you're an accountant or a lawyer making a presentation and you want to use compelling infographics to show what you see, to visually express yourself and to align your colleagues. Or if you're you know, a, a hairstylist and you go solo, you leave your salon and you now have your own Instagram account and TikTok account, and you have to create on-brand content at an increasing volume across all these platforms, you need to have creative skills. So you're not gonna necessarily employ agencies and design teams or learn Illustrator and Photoshop. We need to outfit you with tools to be able to do that.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. And earlier you talked a little bit about this interplay between creativity and technological acceleration, how AI is kind of automating the more mundane parts of the creative process to allow the creative professionals to really unleash their uniquely human abilities. Um, So social media has also been a big part of how people get more creative and share that creativity. We've seen everything this year from TikTok challenges to Um, you know, the beloved Adobe Photoshop has 5.1 million followers on Instagram, which is very impressive. So how do you think social media drives creativity forward? And is there such a thing as creative content overload or fatigue if everyone is always sharing their creativity in a social forum?
1: Well, I think that we have to moderate our consumption of, of, of all this content. Um, Mm -hmm. There's always going to be more of it. and. And it's exciting you know, there's no shortage of inspiration in the world. What I love about this hyper networked way of the world these days is that creativity and culture just accelerates in its evolution, right? Uh, instead of it taking years for some new technique to trickle through the through the industry, it all happens in a, in a, in a nanosecond.
2: Hmm.
1: And so that's that, that I think that at the end of the day, that's a great thing for, for creativity. And, um, and art, et cetera. Um, but I think that you know, there's, some, there's some challenges that come along with that. For example, attribution. You know, the way that creatives get opportunity is they show their work and everyone knows it was them. Mm-hmm. But with this new world of uh, everyone copying or taking other people's images and using them, you know, how do we solve this provenance problem? How do you know who actually made something or who collaborated in order to do something? I'm all for the remix generation but we need to do so in a way that empowers creatives as opposed to, you know, takes advantage of them.
0: Mm-hmm. And I know you've also discussed previously that the future of social is stronger relationships, um, fewer loose connections. So kind of more depth than breadth. What does that mean for creative influencers going forward in these social forums where they're sharing their work?
1: Well, I think there's different networks for different purposes. And I, I see a lot of, Creatives using a, a platform like Instagram to just kind of go mass, mm-hmm. uh, and and then using other other forms of na- uh, social networks or even you know, products like Behance to really connect and follow their peers' work and to have you know more meaningful spawning of relationships, right? That can lead to collaborations, etc. So, I think there will be there will be lots of platforms, all for different reasons. I think we should distinguish between those that are intended for marketing. And those are intended for, like, really, you know, enrichment and and learning.
0: Yep. So I wanted to move on to talk a little bit about um, you, your role as kind of an angel investor. Um, I know you've also been a venture partner for Benchmark Ventures. Um, When you're investing or advising entrepreneurs and startups, what are you looking for? Um, Like, what is some of the key traits of either the entrepreneur themselves or the business model or the idea?
1: Well, I'm I'm really a product-first investor, so I don't proclaim to be a great across-the-board traditional uh, venture capitalist because I'm obsessed with products and teams. So I love to understand how a team thinks through a product problem. Uh, Do they have a really great cadence of building and developing this product? Do do they have a sufficient amount of empathy with the customer suffering the problem they're trying to solve? Do they value design? does every conversation that I have with them become a step function more interesting than the one before it, which to me is a very good signal for how they'll interact with their own teams and their own customers and, and me as an investor. And if all of these stars align and it happens to be an area that's really deeply interesting to me at the moment, then I, I wanna jump in and roll up my sleeves and help them. It's, mm-hmm. it's what keeps me on my toes in the world of you know, Silicon Valley and what's next in technology which certainly helps me in my day job. And it also helps me utilize some of my like muscles in entrepreneurship and early stage product and team development that I don't get to use as much, you know, uh, in my day job. And so I've kind of looked back at the mix of things that I do, uh, whether it's the books that I occasionally write or the uh, teams I work with, or the products and teams I'm building at Adobe. And I've learned about myself that my happiness is, you know, comes from being fully utilized. It makes me when I feel like both personally and professionally, every part of my, you know, interests are being scratched. I, um, you know, that's when I'm most happy. So that's, that's where I have landed, um, as opposed to be like a full-time investor or, or a traditional, you know, executive.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask how you can balance all of these, because I feel like for a lot of people being an author or being, being an executive or being an investor are very different uh, different roles, but you tend to do, you are doing all three. Um, so that balance is really incredible to see.
1: Yeah. It's, you know, sometimes it's a little out of whack, but, uh, but you know, I think you just become more ruthless for how you manage your time yeah. and how you spend it. Um, and, uh, and you refactor how you work. And I think that that's also, it's, it's amazing that, you know, that statement of, you know, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. I really subscribe to, I think that the busier we are, the, greater the forcing function for us to refactor, you know how we how we do stuff, which is really a healthy thing.
0: Yeah. And you still have time to come and join our podcast, which is which Well, hey,
1: you know, anything anything for Cornell. <laughs>
0: um previously in some of your blogs, you've also discussed this concept of ego analytics. Um I can try to explain it, but would love to hear from the original coiner of this term on on what that actually means.
1: Yeah, well, this really comes back to consumer products and a somewhat kind of sad statement for why we engage so much in some of these social products. And, you know, a great example is when you look at the, the login activity for a product like Instagram, it is, you know, at a certain level. And then when someone posts a, a new piece of content, their logins go way up for a period of time. Why is that? Mm. Because they're more interested in seeing who saw their content and what they thought of it than seeing other people's content, which is somewhat counterintuitive. You'd think that a lot of these social networks are about you going and seeing other people's stuff. And this is true for Behance as well. You post a new project to the world, you become insanely interested in the feedback you're getting and who's seeing it and the traction, the number of appreciations or likes or whatever the equivalent is. And so you know, that's what I mean by ego analytics is building in the tools so that people can feel self-assured and rewarded by their contributions to a product. And every product has a version of this. I remember uh, hearing from some folks involved with Mint.com, which is sort of like an early financial management tool, that um, that they found that when people ultimately got to the pie graph of their kind of Financial portfolio or net worth, that's when people suddenly became engaged in the product. Mm-hmm. And so they even had an internal uh, metric called time to pie. And it was basically just how fast can we get a customer to that pie graph? Mm-hmm. Why? It was ego analytics. You know, you wanted to see your worth. You know, that was like part of the purpose of the product. And the faster they could get someone there, the more uh, engagement they got. Mm
0: hmm. But is there also kind of a balance you have to strike between focusing on developing the product against this ego analytics part? And then also, like you were saying, developing the actual social interactions and engaging with others' content. Like, what's kind of the way to bridge that medium?
1: Yeah, well, I think that you have to do both, right? Because a superficial product will also die really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my cardinal rule is that in the first 30 seconds of every customer's experience of a product, they are both lazy, vain and selfish. And so they need to be hooked through that period in order to find and and appreciate the deeper, longer term value of the product. I think as product leaders, one of the mistakes is that we have too much faith in our customers getting through that first mile quickly. Mm -hmm. And we don't recognize that they're busy. No one wants to read things. No one wants to watch and go through tours. No one wants to populate the product with information in order to get value out of it. No one wants to, you know, take tons of time to follow accounts to follow, find accounts to follow so that you can get a really good stream of information. So, you know, in this way, my, one of my favorite slogans in product development comes from my friend Dave Marin, the devil's in the default. Mm. Wherever you land customers at first and the experience you give them to get through that first 30 seconds and appeal to their Laziness in the form of, you know, Stripe would go to developers and say instant payments with three lines of code that appealed to laziness, right? And selfishness. They wanted to look good into, oh my gosh, I integrated payments in in seconds, um, to, uh, to other forms and other social products. And then when you get through that layer, you know, it gets interesting. Mm
0: -hmm. So what, um, what kind of products out there do you think today are, really doing both well. I know you mentioned Stripe. Are there some other examples that that you have found are really excelling in that?
1: Well, certainly, I mean, certainly, TikTok, um, leveraging the power of algorithms has really helped people um, both get their content discovered by a long tail of interested people. So from the ego analytics perspective, I think people are pretty surprised how quickly their TikTok views get, their TikToks get discovered. So it's really a creator friendly platform. And then on the consumption side, as we all know, it's addictive um, from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that almost every new modern social platform um, you know, has has some degree of this. I also am intrigued by the more private, intimate, you know, uh, uh, progress that some synchronous platforms have made. So you look at Clubhouse, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the sensation of, uh, of you know, being in a room that you would ordinarily not be in, you know, with people that you feel you're standing next to, that you, you know, oh my gosh, I'm right next to Oprah right now. She's literally, you know, th- you know 500 pixels away from me right now. Right. And, you know, I could conceivably raise my hand and I could be talking to her. Um, I won't but it's cool to know that I could, you know, that's, that's a new, a new interpretation of some of these same principles. You join Clubhouse, you're instantly touching rooms, you're getting high quality, high bandwidth content, um, with the proximity to participate is a real stroke of, of uh, vanity to some degree.
0: Mm -hmm. For sure. So Clubhouse, TikTok, all of these social media platforms and, um, asynchronous platforms really took off. I think in the middle of COVID, to really help people connect better with each other. So coming out of COVID, um, knock on wood, coming out of COVID, um, what are some you know trends you see for creativity, and um, how can we really capitalize on the tailwinds that COVID has provided for people to really engage creatively?
1: Well, I'm a big, I'm a big subscriber to the idea of the creative economy blossoming, and to me, I kind of more so call it the soloist economy. I just think that so many individuals who once worked for agencies, firms, salons, mm-hmm. you know, any any shingle you can imagine that they associated themselves with um, and took a fraction of the revenue and didn't have creative control are now going to shift to being independent um, workers with creative control. And, uh, and I also think the idea of owning it's just never been as possible as it is today. So whether you have a huge YouTube following or you have you're a journalist that people know, you know, now you have your own Substacks, you have your own Patreon pages, you have um, Super Peers, etc. And so the the future is creators owning their audiences, programming for a smaller but loyal base of people that, you know, subsi- subsidize and, and more than that, they're living, you know, making a, a great living. And, uh, and have you know, true uh, authorship and poetic justice to some degree.
0: Yeah. I mean, throughout this conversation, you listed so many companies and products that are really helping with this creativity ecosystem for consumers. As an executive for Adobe, I'd imagine you really have to think about Adobe's relationship to all of these companies and all of these products, um, whether it's competition, coopetition, um, cooperation. What is that dynamic like in terms of Adobe thinking about how to exist in this creative ecosystem with all of these new new products.
1: Yeah, and I I, first of all, I get very excited about the idea that um, that the creative space is hot. You know, I think that that's that is going to be great for all of the participants. It's going to certainly serve the creative community with better products. And it's really good for Adobe because it's going to keep us on our toes um, and it's going to prompt a lot of innovation. That is uh, with like a greater sense of urgency, and that's you know that's why I'm here. Like I love that stuff, uh, and I I also think that all these products need to work together. You know the one interesting thing about creativity is that it's about the clashes of difference. It's about different types of products having interoperability with one another to un- unleash new forms of creativity. I mean that's literally how it happens. You look at. Animation and video, and then you get motion graphics, and and uh, you look at the, a product like Photoshop applying to a 3D object, and you get these products, the Substance products that we have, that are really the you know industrial grade applications for making anything in 3D look photorealistic. Mm-hmm. And in the world of virtual reality and augmented reality, unless we are surrounded by amazingly interactive, cool, real-looking things, it's all going to fall flat. And so. Adobe has a role to make that happen alongside a lot of third party tools. So we're very focused on on really opening up our our products, having a lot of interoperability and building uh, and being a steward of the ecosystem.
0: Awesome. I really like that. So the last few questions we have here, our producers actually gathered from some of our loyal listeners in advance who (laughs) really would enjoy hearing from your perspective. Um, so the first one is, what advice do you have for people who tend to struggle with being creative in problem solving and tend to be more of, say, a numbers person? How can they become more creative in their professional work?
1: Well, two answers. One is we all have to surround ourselves with people that are different. And I think one of the great cases for diversity in teams is you're stacking the deck in your favor of, of having ideas you didn't anticipate yourself, right? I mean, the more Eclectic—the group of people around you inherently, the more um, wild and different the um, ideas and solutions are going to be. So, make sure you do that. It doesn't come naturally. You have to kind of force and 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 work on that. Um, And then I also think that you know the the recipe for creativity for me is curiosity combined with initiative. So, any sort of thing that strikes your fancy, anything that makes you really curious taking the initiative to like go deeper and 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 explore it yields some form of discovery and you know that is that is what creativity is to me
0: yeah for sure so the next one is you are also an author your best selling books include the messy middle and making ideas happen tell us about some books that you like to read that drive your creative thinking both in the context of business and personal life
1: Yeah, I mean, I like um, I like reading books that are, you know, give me some kind of insight into humanity um, and our sort of natural tendencies, because I think that those insights, you know, really parlay themselves into the types of products we use and the types of experiences we seek, etc. So whether it's a book like uh, like Tribes, uh, Tribe by Sebastian Junger, which is really all about community and defaults of community and and. you know community behavior or uh books like sapiens, which just talks about early humanity and you know what our impact was on this world and why homo sapiens in particular you know uh, thrived above all these other forms of of um early humans so uh you know i I love stuff like that. I just wish mm-hmm. I had more time for it
0: <laughs> and know. I was going to say sapiens is such a thick volume. How long did it take for you to? to read that in between all of your other <sighs> engagements.
1: Oh my goodness, I don't even know if I'm done yet. I mean, I you know, it's, it's one of those on my Kindle that I just return to and read whenever I have have time.
0: Yeah. What are uh, some of your maybe tips and advice for our classmates out there who are really interested in getting into venture and venture capital?
1: Well, I I think it's really helpful. I mean, listen, there's just tons and tons and tons of capital and uh And a lot of it is just like harmless capital. It's out there, you know, it's for the taking, but it's not necessarily um, truly value add beyond the dollars to entrepreneurs. I, as an entrepreneur, I always wanted investors who had like a deep specialty in a particular space. And Mm -hmm. so, I'm sure there's some argument for just going into finance and being a venture capitalist from day one. But I think it's a lot more interesting to cut your teeth in a great role Um, working in either product or go to market, you know, working in industry you're interested in because that credibility translates to empathy with the entrepreneurs you're trying to fund. Mm -hmm. And, And most entrepreneurs I know prefer to work with operators as investors. So, you know, that would be my vote. But of course, I'm biased on that one.
0: Right. Having done that yourself. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. And we have one last question which is looking back upon your career and also looking ahead at what's to come. Did you think this would be the path you chose for yourself and what is your advice for all those aspiring business school students out there, which is our biggest listening demographic, on how to channel creativity as the new productivity into advancing their careers?
1: Well, I think that we all should be creators and we all should be building our own audience. And it, and even if you're in a business or in business school, getting yourself—I mean, Twitter to me—I—I—I I, I can't under underrepresent, like overrepresent, like how important Twitter was to my career. It was how I followed people and learned from them. It was how I connected um, with people. It was how I tracked people building cool things and became investors. And it just takes time. You just—you you know, want to get into the conversation, insert yourself when you have something valuable to add and start building your your network that is I mean, it's so few people do that and it's uh it's amazing to me because it's uh it's sort of the way you can become an expert these days is by you know remaining a student getting yourself in there constantly learning and mm-hmm. contributing so i think that that's uh i think that's i think that's important to make time to do
0: Well, thank you so much. I learned so much from our conversation and especially the fact that I need to go build a Twitter (laughs) account. now. But really, this was really insightful and and incredible to hear.
1: Thank you for uh, for hosting me and for the great questions.
0: Thank you for listening to Present Value Podcast, an independent student run podcast founded, created and produced by MBA students at Cornell University. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Hosted by me, Minwai Tao, and produced by Adam Musa, Will Stankiewicz, and Jason Lee. Until next time.